Hey everyone, welcome to the Millennial Sales Podcast. I am your co-host, Charlie Lisk. And I'm your co-host, Jay Jackson. This episode will focus on answering the question, is sales for me? It's a big one. It's a big topic. A lot of folks coming out of college going into this profession or going into other professions, and it's definitely a time, if nothing's changed since I got out of college, definitely a time where you're like, well, what in the world am I supposed to do now? So we wanted to give some context as to what the history of sales has been as it's been influenced by different macroeconomic and like technical advances and why now is the right time for millennials to be getting into sales. And if you do it now, the majority of the sales force, especially in tech, is going to be millennials. So even if you feel like maybe you've missed a trainer, even if you feel like uh, you know, you're getting in too early, you're going to be super well poised to execute now and then be in a really good position and be really good at what you're doing uh, when millennials do take over uh, this industry. So we'll go through a timeline of, you know, how some things have changed, how sales has responded to that, and then really answer that question of, you know, is this thing for me? Should I dig into this thing? And really just kind of give you some context that says this is not your father's sales game anymore and we're going to show you exactly how. Plus, we'll have some supplemental information on the website. You can go download, print out if you think it's that pretty, pass it off as your own, whatever you want to do. Uh, something for you to look at and kind of follow along what we're talking about. So, thanks for tuning in. Ultimately, what we want you to get out of this episode is perspective. Whether you are exploring a future in sales or already a salesperson, we will discuss why this can be one of the best career decisions you will make. Yeah. And so before you get into the actual like facts and figures and show how many people are actually coming into sales right out of college, I think it's so important. And I'm just going to like speak directly to the folks who have been in this job. You come out of college or maybe you come out of a different profession, whatever, right? You go into one of these tech companies, you go through the little sales boot camp, and you come into the role, you sit in the seat. And you're in it maybe a month and you're like, oh shit, this is not what I thought this was going to be. And then it's all those questions start circling. Did I do the right thing? Is this even for me? And you've likely, depending on your experience, already answered the question, hey, this is not for me. I'm going to go you know, build wells in Africa or go work in my dad's business or go back to school. Yeah, go back to school. I have talked to so many young sellers that just get into this game and then get hit upside the head with that. And I think there's a handful of factors that play into you questioning yourself and questioning this as a profession for you. And we'll talk about those in a bit. But if you've felt that and you are questioning if you should stay in this, stick with this, whatever, we hope that by the end of this episode, you'll have at least context as to why you're feeling that way. And then enough information for you to be able to make that decision moving forward to say, yeah, I'm going to stick with it. Or you know what? Now I know the facts. Now I know what's coming. No, I'm going to stick with it. So Jay, you've you've looked up, you know, folks coming out of school and then where they're going into work. And I was actually surprised by some of these facts and figures. I mean, I've been in the tech sales business for a while and I've seen it go from basically the old guard to now the majority of sellers in tech are actually young folks in an office, in a big office. And there's a lot of advantages to that. But it was interesting to watch that take place, right? But you've actually got facts and figures around it, not just anecdotal experience. Yep. So what did you find when you dug into where are people going when they graduate college? Yeah. Glassdoor analyzed thousands of resumes, tabulating the most common careers for new grads 
and Charlie, sales was the most common job. There were actually two sales careers in the top 10. And to try to put a number on this stat, 2016 is believed to be the first year the United States cleared 2 million students graduating with a bachelor's degree. Go us. And extrapolating a bit, 250 to 300,000 of these graduates will start their careers in sales. That's so many. That's a lot of young sellers. And so companies, both big and small, are coming in like Uncle Sam, recruiting these graduates to sign on for a sales career. Yeah. These big companies aren't stupid either. I mean, you look at like a, a Google or Microsoft or Amazon or Oracle or any of these big companies out there that started these college recruiting programs. And like IBM's been doing it forever. But I think it's definitely the trend now that these large tech companies are really making that, I don't, I don't I will call it a transition, uh, because you can only have, I mean, they've only had so many salespeople and then it's the mix of the people that changes. And over the past you know, five or so years, that mix has been uh, really leaning towards you know, young folks in a big office doing quote unquote inside sales. That's not just because they saw IBM doing it and they're like, oh, that's a good idea. But it's the industry. There's a lot of technological changes in the way that people are building, selling, and consuming business IT today that are really driving that. So these companies are going to colleges and recruiting folks through these specialized programs to you know, snatch folks up that they want from certain colleges, certain degrees, whatever. And that's all for a reason. Right. Yeah. And when we look at a number like 300,000 graduates going into sales, we think, how did we get here? That's so funny. Like, that is such a big number. And there's a part of me that's like, that's so excited about that. But if you have been in sales a while, like if there's any of my, my boys on my field teams that are like 45 year old plus here in this, that's got to make you a little scared. And even just the sheer volume of young sellers. That's a lot of folks. So like I talked about, there's you know, a handful of factors that have really trans, like, transformed this industry. And you can call them, uh, I think that there's like some actual like macroeconomic factors, things that have impacted, say, uh, you know, the biggest companies in the world. We'll get some stats around like the Fortune 500 and how that has changed, how companies are closing and the rate of closure of companies of that size. And then there's actual technological advances, right? Things used to be made a certain way and they're made differently now and that changes everything. So really what I wanted to do in this timeline was really focus on what's changing in the world and how his sales had to respond to that. And I think that the sales response is, again, what changes the dynamic of who does that well, like who makes that transition well and who are companies looking to to make that transition with them and ultimately for them. And so us millennials are in a really good spot when we look at where are things going and you know why we're well positioned for it. So you know some of this, um, and I'll try to do my best to explain some of the like technology advancements without getting too technical, which is usually not a problem for me. Like <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I, I've never been accused of being very technical. Um, which is another thing as a young seller. Like if you're like, oh, I don't really understand this stuff. You only have to understand it to a bit. It's about being able to navigate the business. Right. But in sales in general, right, we'll kind of broaden things for a bit. A lot of you have probably not heard the term information asymmetry, right? But what information asymmetry is, you know, by definition, it's like one side of the people have the information, the other side of the people do not. And before the internet, we didn't really have super empowered buyers, right? I mean, think about, 
think about the car industry for a sec. Sales has gotten such a bad name because there were some bad players that took advantage of vulnerable buyers and this imbalance of power that came from information asymmetry. And really, I, I feel like back then there was it was normal, more normalized at least, to have these unscrupulous sales practices because it was people taking advantage of a situation. And I think, you know, in a sense, that's human nature. Sometimes people mean to, sometimes people don't, but that's kind of how it was. And what sucked about it was people were getting ripped off. It gave salespeople a bad name. And I don't think that any industry really carried that uh, trend or identity better than the car business, right? You've got that like used car salesman and like any meme or whatever you look at. I mean, car people back then, they were like, oh, they suck. Like the worst person in sales that you could be. And it's funny because my dad actually grew up in that world. And so I've actually been able to hear some frontline stories of what was normal back then. And it would just make you cringe today. So we had this huge imbalance of power and wildly vulnerable people buying stuff. And I think that we got a bad reputation from that. But then, of course, as the Internet came along, we really uh, it just made information a commodity. Most people could just get it. And then that was one of the major shifts that took place when both sides had the information. Then all of a sudden it had to be about something else. So there's really a fundamental change in the relationship between the buyer and the seller brought upon by the information age. Yeah, I think it happens for a couple of reasons. I mean, for one, you can actually get information about, you know, the product or the scenario or whatever you're buying into, right? You know, and of course, when like review sites came around, you know, later, uh, you know, in the, in the 2000s, you could actually read reviews about, you know, people, hey, this guy's a ripoff. Hey, they'll tell you this, whatever. So, you, I mean, then the peer reviews came into play and that really leveled the playing field quite a bit. But I think you at least just got more perspective. So, I mean, sticking with like the car example, I mean, you could find out what people were paying for cars everywhere. I mean, advertisements all over the Internet to where you found out like, hey, what's a good price for this thing? Or, hey, is this floor mat? thing that they're going to give me? Is this a good deal? Or is this extended warranty that they're going to give me? Is this a good deal? Do these people pay claims? I feel like you could just make more informed decisions after people had access to the information. And I think that goes obviously for anything, which is the same reason people tell you to do your research on something, right? It's just so you don't find yourself in a bad spot making uninformed decisions. And I think previously people really didn't have much of a choice. The, you know, the information wasn't always there for folks. And then of course, when information became a commodity, it was just out there for you, everybody could get it, then I just think we have more empowered buyers. That's it. So Charlie, how does that change both the role and the method of the salesperson? Yeah, the level playing field for the salesperson basically means that they simply have to be better because with an informed customer, you're no longer able to like pull the wool over their eyes and sell them on just, you know, some artificial things or some superficial benefits, you actually now, like if they know what a product will or will not do for them, I mean, now it's like, no, I know it's not going to do that. This is bullshit. You know, why should I get this thing? And I think all of a sudden it kind of takes it as soon as you have, you know, level players, I think that you have to actually be a bit more customer focused because at the end of the day, they can probably get from you, you know, the thing that you're selling, they can get that from, you know, frankly, multiple people. And so they have choice. And as soon as customers have choice, you now have to not really you know, be selling for yourself anymore. You have to sell for that customer. You have to 
go to them and you know take their concerns or their benefit in mind and actually be more of a customer-centric seller. And in that case of a customer-centric sale, the sale has to go deeper. It has to become more meaningful. I mean, it takes away advantage to where all of a sudden you just have to focus on the customer. And so that was a big shift. Well, expand upon that. Expand upon what it means to go deeper in a sale. This is kind of getting into like value selling, right? When price is commoditized or people can understand what a good price is or can get it from someone else because now they can you know, see that or find that, they're going to go with the person who is more customer centric, is more tuned into what they want versus just being you know, kind of like an order taker, like a provider of a good and he, uh, he focused on just a couple like surface level things like price and payments or whatever, right? When you have to focus more on the customer, you have to get a lot deeper, right? You got to understand what they're into, what their circumstances are, you know, what do they care about, you know, what's going to really bring value for them and then arrange the entire sales cycle around that. And so I just feel like you have to take more into consideration when there's more customer choice than you had to when there was less customer choice. And a, and a good example is in the tech industry. If we look through like 80s, 90s, even 2000s, people were building what they call a, like a big monolithic application. And if you're not familiar with any of those terms, what it basically means is one giant application that does a bunch of things for the company, does like a bunch of business IT needs, and it was built in this just singular stack, right? You had a bunch of storage, a bunch of hardware, uh, you know, a handful of databases, very large things, and then you know this giant application. And you would only update it, you know, every you know 18 months, two years, something like that. They had these kind of they called them like waterfall deployments. These big systems were giant commitments. Everything was tied to everything else. It was like moving a very big ship. It was kind of like Titanic of applications, right? And they were heavily customized. People would uh, you know, create hundreds, if not thousands of customizations, basically locking them into this one system because it was so heavily customized and built for them that they couldn't move off of it, right? And from an application deployment standpoint, that's how stuff was. And frankly, to this day, a lot of big enterprises still run on stuff like that. So if you work at a big company or you've seen people who work at a big company, and you've looked at some of the applications that they interface with, and they look old as shit, that's because they were made this way. They were put in a long time ago, and people spent millions, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars acquiring and then putting these things in, and then they've made so many changes to it to make it specific to their business, it's really difficult to get off of those things, right? And so that's the way tech used to be made. And when you were a salesperson selling these giant systems, it was a very hard sell, but once you did it, the customer was locked in. And so from the tech company's perspective, once you got somebody on one of these pillar systems, I mean, you had them. I mean, they're not going to move. They spent so much time, so much money getting on it that, I mean, shoot, it was like where vendor lock-in started. And vendor lock-in simply means that the customer doesn't have that much choice. So all of a sudden, you see business IT decisions not being made based on, hey, what's best for this particular use case or you know, for this particular point in time. Now it's based on other prerequisites, other dependencies. How can we just expand on this giant ass thing that we're tied to right now? And so all of that results in a lack of customer choice. And when they're captive and they can't really go anywhere, that's where in the tech business anyway, you had 
a decent amount of tech salespeople, as well as the companies themselves, just taking advantage of the fact that the customers couldn't go anywhere. They were resting on their laurels, right? We made the sale a long time ago. We you know, support them every year, whatever, but they're not going to leave. And that makes, in my opinion, and I've seen this, makes salespeople lazy, makes the tech company lazy. And I think that they were also ripe for disruption. So when the when people started, you know, the cloud obviously became more popular in the 20, 2000s, 2010s. When people started making technology in a different way, and all of a sudden it was, you know, readily available, and you could just subscribe to it and rent it, kind of like, you know, how Netflix is, you know, for us consumers. When companies got that kind of choice, all of a sudden, these old tech companies with all these big monolithic locked-in applications and people who have just been taking advantage of vendor lock-in for years, decades, gotten real deep shit. That's disruption, right? And so from a sales perspective, the salespeople are also being disrupted. Because if you've been selling through that entire time frame, you've only really had to sell on certain aspects, right? And so when we talk about like going deeper in a sale back then, you really didn't have to prove the value over and over again because the customer wasn't fucking going anywhere. All you had to do was like talk about some discounts maybe, you know, do a few other concessions, but it was very surface level selling, right? Sales now, especially in the cloud space that we're moving into, that they're recruiting all millennials to come in and start selling, customers have choice and they can make that choice every month to continue to use your stuff or not. They make that choice every year to use your stuff or not. And so you were constantly having to sell the value of what your stuff is, does, and why you're the best one to give it to them. So when we talk about going deeper into a sale, sales now is much more dynamic and there's so much more to it than there was you know, over the last 10, 20, 30 years, simply because the technology is different. And that's the disruption. And you actually lead us into one of the economic indicators we wanted to talk about in this episode, which is the changes that have occurred to the Fortune 500. Yeah, and it's, I think when you look at, I mean, it's just one indicator, right? What it represents is the rate of change that we see. Just like when you hear about like data, right? Like data, data the amount of data the world produces like doubles every year or something like that, right? Like it's the rate of change that's increasing rapidly. And the Fortune 500 is really just a good way to kind of see that, right? So, like, if you look at it, and I've seen these stats somewhere, and I believe they're, they're as accurate as I can remember, but from, like, 1955-ish to 2000, 88%, 88% of the folks, the businesses on the Fortune 500 have disappeared. That's an incredibly high number. Yes. And, and so, like, from a company beginning, for, so during that time period, right, from a company starting to you know, thriving, to surviving, to just closing the doors, used to be about 75 years. That's a long time, right? Nowadays, I mean, you hear about like small businesses don't last like five years or whatever, but I'm talking like even these Fortune 500, the biggest ones, nowadays it's less than 15 years. So like from the year 2000 to today, that same, that same group of companies that fit that, um, that category, right? Fortune 500, the very, very big companies, it used to be, from 1955 to 2000, they would last about 75 years. Now, from 2000 to now, they only last about 15 years. And so what we're seeing is like this rapid decline in business life cycle. The life cycle that a company can start, be open, and close is just changing rapidly. But it's just due to the pace 
of change that we've seen everywhere else. And technology is obviously like one of the main, main, main drivers for that. And if you're in the tech business, of course, we get to take advantage of that. And it's always interesting for us, for sure. Um, but we are drivers of that change, right? I mean, you hear about disruptors all the time. And I feel like the being a disruptor didn't really come out until we've seen you know startups and tech businesses do it and start to close down like Netflix came out and kicked Blockbuster in the nuts and now they're closed. Like we, I think Disruptor became very popular uh, most recently, but I mean, we've always had disruptive forces. It's part of what makes capitalism so dynamic and good, you know? But yeah, I mean, it's, I think if you were to take anything from that, take the fact that business is changing rapidly because our environment is changing rapidly, our economy is changing more rapidly, and you know, it just creates a lot of opportunities for us because ultimately what has to happen is the people who were suited for selling back then are just being replaced by those of us who are suited for selling now. It's just a dynamic thing. It's just like, uh, again, sales is response to macroeconomic changes. So you say those of us who are equipped to sell now, but why do companies believe millennial sellers are the answer? Isn't there an inherent risk in transitioning to a younger, less experienced sales force? Yeah. So, I mean, if I'm looking at uh, why do companies go to colleges and spend tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars trying to recruit the best of the best college graduates to come into sales to make up that 300,000 salespeople uh, coming into this industry, why do they do that? They do it for a couple reasons. The main one is that with this, you know, so like since cloud technologies have emerged, it opened up subscription pricing. Right, it's delivered more as a service versus uh, something you buy and own forever. Hey, thanks for, uh, you know, thanks for the purchase. We'll see you next time. Right, and the the best way to look at it is the way that consumer IT has influenced really business IT. Right, Netflix is a great example. It's a B two C uh, business, so a business to consumer. It's Netflix selling directly to people like you and me, and we subscribe. And if it's not working for me, then I don't pay next month. I go to Hulu or whatever, right? So the thing about it is, is there's this subscription, uh, you know, basis that people are consuming technology on today. So switching it back to these large, like B2B uh, tech companies, their consumers are, or their customers are, are consuming tech the same way. So now that, you know, what used to be you would pay hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to buy a license of some kind of software and then go deploy it forever. Now all of a sudden you can rent it from these big tech companies. And in that it inherently makes the business more transactional. And when you have transactional business, that means, you know, uh, smaller amounts, more frequent amounts, like that's what inside sales teams were always set up to do. But since most of the business is being done that way now, that, means that we have to have a lot of inside salespeople to execute that type of business. It's, it's what it was designed for. And millennials are great for this because frankly, you cost less, right? We don't cost as much as a guy who's 55, been doing it for 20 years and has five kids, three of them in college or whatever, right? That guy has earned his stripes and he's you know heavily paid on the salaries, heavily paid on commission. When the business doesn't support paying people like that anymore, you have to move to a different model. And that different model is paying younger people who are more dynamic, better at process-driven transactional sales. And frankly, you can pay them 
uh, you know, in a way that uh, your business supports because transactional sales are smaller deals. You don't have as much to pay salespeople. Young folks are perfect for that. Sure. Building out a young sales force can make sense for a business from a financial perspective and from a process perspective. But ultimately, I want to flip this question on its head and answer the question from this episode, is sales for me? Or maybe even the question, why should I go work in tech sales? So the business is trying to recruit the millennials to fit their business model, right? They're trying to sell them on this concept. And you're right. Like, why is a consumer, a buyer, why should I buy into going to work for Google or should I buy into going to work for some startup or whatever? And that's a great point, right? And you know, you do have choice. And that's the beauty of this whole situation is when you have choice, you have power. And right now, if I'm, you know, being recruited out of college, you've got to recognize where you sit. You've got a bit more power than you think, right? Granted, you still don't know anything, but the beauty is, and this kind of ties into what I want to touch on in a minute about how this still works well for the business, because sales these days, transactional sales can be taught more as a process, which makes sales more of a science than like it used to be with like the golf and steak sale, kind of more of an art. There's still a lot of art that goes into it, but nice thing is, and what I mean by all this is you can be taught this stuff, right? It is being now taught as processes and as a science. So you'll get it, right? You'll get good at it. So don't be scared that, uh, you know, hey, I should be desperate as these people, you know, and go to like the first company that approaches me or whatever. You have choice. They are looking for you. You fit their model. So things to look at it, like why would a millennial get into this gig at all? God, there are so many good reasons, right? One, I will say, and, I, and I'll stick this to like tech sales specifically. It's just software for the most part, right? Most people are just selling software. What's the nice thing about selling software? You make it once for the most part, you sell it and you sell it and sell it and sell it and you just keep selling. It's like a book, right? You write it once and then you sell the shit of it forever and then you just keep getting money for it. Software is very similar. Cloud services are a little bit different, but there's still, software is a high margin game. And when there is high margin, if you can get people to pitch your stuff, you are able to pay them more versus somebody who like moves physical goods. You can only have so much margin on something because if it's a physical good, you have to produce it, you have to store it, you have to ship it. You, there's all these costs. There are less costs in the software game, which makes margins very high and it makes you know more room to pay salespeople. So like you could be, like if you look at that kind of classic uh, trade-off of like, the bigger problem you solve, the more money you get for it, right? Like, why does money change hands at all? You could be solving an equal problem to somebody in like a different industry, but simply be paid more because there's more money to go around in software. Yes, there's absolutely a financial reward of being able to make money. But you also talk about impact, and impact is incredibly important. I don't think we talk about this enough. For sure. And, and I want to take this opportunity to tell everybody who looks at millennials and says, and kind of mocks us, is like, oh, we want to make an impact. Oh, we want to make a difference. Oh, do I love what I do? Fuck off, right? Like, forgive us for having a heart and wanting to help people, right? And then looking at our jobs as an opportunity to do that. In fact, that's what makes happy people. And that's what makes people good at their job. When you truly give a shit about what you're doing, then you're really good at it. And the beauty is we're in this position now to where we have the luxury of being able to focus on something that makes us happy, that makes us feel fulfilled, right? Like we're not, we don't really work in this time anymore where, you know, shit, we got a farm because the village needs food. 
I may not like farming, but it's what I got to do. And I feel like that's kind of an old like survivalist mentality, like that sort of just suck it up. It's what you got to do. Just do it. But I feel like we have so many luxuries and our culture is in such a place today that we have choice. And I feel like if, I mean, just like everybody else says, right, find something you love, go do it, blah, blah. I do think that's true. And I do think you've got to have kind of a realistic mix on like, hey, I've got to provide and all that stuff too. But beauty is, and what I've found in sales is that I can do both. I love what I do. And it's like even stuff like this. It creates, if not a direct opportunity, so like my role does not include training people, but my role gives me access to people I can train that need help, right? And so it's like there's all kinds of direct benefits, things that are in your job description, things that they say, if you give me these results, I will give you these things. Those are set up really well. You know, sellers in general are set up to receive really good packages, but then it's all the fringe stuff and it's how you look at it. And it's, do you take advantage of the opportunities in front of you to be able to feel more fulfilled, make a bigger impact, you know, do whatever. Nice thing is, is sales in general is very entrepreneurial to where if you want to jump out and do something dynamic, do something different, do something cool, and it impacts people, and it makes you feel good, you're going to get as much support as you want. And these impacts are directly on the companies you're working with, the companies that become customers. Yeah, and I think that it, I think that you can look at it in a handful of different ways, right? Like I think if you put, like if you were to draw a diagram, right, and put a successful salesperson at the middle of it, and by that I mean they achieve what the company asks you exactly to achieve, which is sell X amount of stuff for X amount of dollars and do it in X amount of time, right? I think spiking from that, you can have impact on your customers and then impact on the customer's business because you're selling to a business most of the time. And then you even have impact on individuals within that business. So for example, you save the company X amount of money because your tech is really good or you enable some new line of business and they make a bunch of money because your tech is really good and does a certain thing. There are those big kind of business impacts. But then when you start to look at companies as just collections of individuals, which is of course what they are, you have people that you're selling to that you know you get to impact their career. And then with that, you can get them more money, then get their kids braces, and then they send their kids to college. And like, if you really, seriously, like if you wanted to think through it, you should talk to somebody in a different industry who's like a buyer or a project manager or an IT director or something and ask him, like, hey, what's a project that you did that really set your career off? That gave you a big bonus, gave you a big raise, something, right? You'll talk to people who've had these pivotal moments where something's happened, they let it, they took a chance, they let it, and it worked out, and it ended up big for them. What they don't talk about, but I bet if you would ask, you would learn, there was always a salesperson behind that. There was somebody enabling that change for them, enabling that accomplishment with them, and without it, it wouldn't happen. And then if you were to take that person's story and extrapolate it over everything that happened from there, maybe they get a big bonus and they invested in a rent house and now it, you know, they've got an asset to pass to their kids and it pays them, you know, 2000 bucks a month, or maybe they were able to pay for a surgery their wife needed. There's so much good shit that people can do with their personal success. And you as a salesperson can tap into and enable that personal success. Yeah. You're yeah. almost tasked with creating yes. those downstream effects. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that you use the word test, right? I was talking to a customer of mine. He's a new customer, but we're just totally hitting it off because he can tell I'm totally in it for him. I'm competent. Right. Um, and then with him, this guy is new to his role. 
looking to make a splash, and I know exactly what he's doing. He's trying to come in and just stomp ass and make a name for himself, let all of his people know, hey, you made the right choice bringing me in, and then anybody who said I wasn't, middle finger to you. And I and I and we were talking about it, and he's like, man, we're going to do really well together. I was like, totally. You know, I was like, look, I have a professional and a moral obligation to make sure that I help you. We have stuff that can help you, and I know that for a fact. And I know it can help the company. And you, if you team up with me on this, you be my man on this, then this is going to propel your career as well. And he's just totally bought into the idea. But the thing is, is as a salesperson, you have to find those people and find what it means to them and look at it really as you're satisfying three people. And one of them is never you, by the way. It's always you're satisfying the individual you're selling to. You're satisfying the company you're selling to as a whole. It's kind of make an impact there. And then you're satisfying your company to be able to keep the seat, make the money, and then be able to continually make these impacts on people because you continue to produce the results for everybody else. Your, you come into the picture only after the fact, right? You get the satisfaction of helping everybody. You get the satisfaction of learning. You have to learn so much through these processes. And then you get paid. So it's like that's what's in it for you. But you should always be after the fact. And people find it so funny, but I don't even calculate commissions on deals until I'm supposed to get paid on it. I'm like, oh yeah, I, I make money on doing that thing. But it, it's because, and I think it's part of what makes me execute well is because I'm not focused on me. I'm not focused on the money that's in it for me. I'm focused on, hey, let's help this person out. Let's get this thing done. I like challenges. This will be cool. Get it done. And then, oh yeah, I get paid for that too. Right? It's a, it's a weird thing. But I feel like people who approach it that way is, are successful. <laughs> Um, and and you couldn't sound more like a millennial if you if you tried, I think. <laughs> I know, but it's yeah, yeah. I but that's I the beauty mean. of it, though, man. Like yeah. the opportunity is there. Yeah. If you want to, you want to help folks. You want to make that difference. It kind of tied in, I think, to where it started. If you want to make that impact, if you want to know you're making a difference, just think about it. Think you're in a position, and you wield a lot of power, and you can use that for good or you can use that for bad. And I feel like most of us want to use it for good. And if you look at it that way and really extrapolate what happens as you help people, you'll get that satisfaction. And it sounds funny to be like, hey, I feel very fulfilled selling enterprise software, right? I mean, that's kind of a stupid thing, but it's not really. And I think what people will find as they, as they go through life, and I've certainly learned this for myself, and I've had some mentors teach me this, it doesn't matter what you do right? The products could be whatever. It's, are you helping other people? Are you making those impacts? Are you fulfilled by that? Product doesn't matter, right? So you could sell it in tech, you could do it in financial services, you could, you know, physically go build a well somewhere, whatever. It's just, you know, are you helping folks? Yeah. I love that. Um, and I think we should, we should find the right way to explore that more and talk about the ability to create that high impact. And really that theme should flow through everything you're going to hear from this millennial sales podcast. Mm -hmm. I think keep that frame of reference in mind as you listen, because you'll hear that a lot from both of us. It's important to why we do what we do to my motivation, to why I wake up and come to work every day. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things too, when you talk to customers and, and so I talk about trust, right? People don't buy from people they don't trust. And what the definition of trust, right? And I read this once, loved it totally stealing it. I'm sorry for whoever I'm ripping it off of, but, um, we'll cite it. We'll cite it. Yeah. Some book sometime. Can that be a site? Um, 
<laughs> so trust is simply intent plus expertise, right? So they have to trust that you know what you're doing, and they have to trust that you're doing it, you know, with the right intent, like with them in mind. You're not being malicious. And I think that you could see it, like if you play that out and say, well, people can show up with a lot of heart, but if you don't know what you're doing, uh, I appreciate it, but I still don't trust that you'll be able to get this done. Or somebody can show up super well-versed in what they're doing, but if they seem like a piece of shit, people still won't trust them and they won't do it, even if they know they have the expertise to get it done. You've got to have both. And so that's where, this is again where I feel like people trying to make a difference, trying to find a purpose, can do super well in sales because people feel that. And people will trust you. And what's been fun to watch in my career and what's been more fun to just experience because Jesus, it just gets so much easier as this comes on is I've always had the right intent. And so I've always been able to get in the door. The expertise that I've gained over the years has really sort of completed that package for me to where I could do things in a short amount of time, do it with less resources, do it more confidently and competently. That's, that's again why I feel like us millennials are super poised for that because we do come in with that right intent from the beginning, right? It's just a matter of adding on the right experience to where people ultimately just trust you and you get to impact their lives in wonderful ways. Yeah. I think that's a benefit you have uh, being on the back end of being a millennial. Yeah. Yeah, like the <laughs> Nick Cannon you... millennial where you're like, oh, I guess, right? <laughs> I mean, he's not old. <laughs> yeah, not old. <laughs> and I love how we're able to talk about impact. So to recap... So far, we've talked about the value that millennials bring to companies they work for and their intrinsic value there. We've talked about the financial rewards. Um, and one thing we actually haven't yet discussed is the ability as sales reps to see projects through to completion and see the success of the projects you work on. To that, though, I mean, it's also a dynamic of where tech sales is today, right? It used to be that you could sell something and then it was all on the customer, like literally as a salesperson. And I've, I've done many deals like this. You would close a deal and you would walk away, collect your check, and go do something else. And that's just the way it was. The onus used to fall on the customer to have to buy everything and then implement everything and then make sure it was successful. And that was on them. Like, hey, I just sell the stuff, you know? Nowadays, it doesn't work that way. Again, customer choice. Again, their subscriptions. You know, customers can leave you next month if they don't like this. Not only, it's not even about an obligation to make sure they're successful. Turns out that was always the right thing to do. You know, many of us just didn't know it. But now you have to. I mean, you literally won't have a sale next month if you don't, right? Or you won't have a sale next year when that deal comes up for renewal and it wasn't successful, so the customer doesn't renew it. You don't have a choice anymore, right? And so it's sort of a, a side benefit of that, like you were saying, is that it's like the, the satisfaction of crossing off the last item on a to-do list times a thousand because they're giant projects, they're hard, they do big things. They include big numbers like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like it's cool. And it's cool to see how business works. And that's one of the biggest things. Like when you get in sales, you get to really find out how business works. And it's just a fascinating thing. But you do have to complete these projects. Very fulfilling to like go through a cycle, work so hard. And then you close it, you get on the other side of it. And it's like, oh God, that was fun. So we've got fulfillment. We've got the high impact you're able to make. We see how valuable you are to your company, the financial freedom it allows you, the ability to be promoted and to accelerate your career. I don't think we touched on that, but... We didn't. And, you know, 
there's a and in fact we've got a, a future episode coming up where I think we've already got the interview lined up we're gonna talk with an inside sales manager who's been doing it I think for like 10 years or something like that and which puts him basically squarely in the middle of this change right like this game changed about halfway through his tenure and he got to manage reps of the old and reps of the new and again it's not necessarily uh, what I mean by that is just people who had to sell the old way versus people who now have to sell the new way and of course that changes a lot of things but he was actually my manager he's the guy who got me into tech and what I loved about the way that he managed was he was all about your progression as a person as a professional and at a career and you'll hear him talk about I don't want to steal any of the, the interview thunder but you'll hear him talk about like look if your next gig is not here great let's get you ready for it whatever that is and the beauty is is sales people move this is not a, a, a position or a, a, a profession where you're expected to go sit in a seat and sell to the same people doing the same thing not progressing your career for years on end people don't get mad when you want to be dynamic and move around right they encourage it here and it's so wonderful it's the only industry that's been able to keep me interested because it changes all the time and it changes when I want it to change. You bring up another interesting point, and that's freedom and flexibility. As a sales rep, you'll have more freedom and flexibility to schedule and run your day or your business how you're best able to. I agree, but I want to. We've been making this sound very rosy because for the most part, it really is. I want to offer like first bit of criticism but something you have to master right so when you talk about like freedom of schedule so think about what a salesperson does salesperson walks in company says hey here's what we sell here's what you're gonna be selling we're on a 12-month schedule sales is always about meeting some type of number by a certain timeline usually it's broken out into a fiscal year company wants to achieve a certain amount of fiscal year so they break that down to you and you get your little chunk and then that's normally broken down into quarters uh, whether you're a publicly traded company or not, right? It's just a good check-in. So you get your product, you get your team, you get your resources, you get maybe some scripts, and you get your training, and you get your number, and they say, go get it. And from there, different companies are better at supporting people than others are. Some people are more self-service. What it really comes down to, though, is you are in charge of taking all of those factors and then breaking them into goals and then breaking them into actions and then coming in every day and executing on the plan that you set. Now in inside sales, especially with young sellers, there's a lot more help than there was when I first started. And frankly, a lot more help than I get now because I'm in the field. They expect us to just know what we're doing. So you get a number and you get a product and they say, all right, see you in 12 months. But you do have to schedule your day and the nice part about that is you get to schedule how you best work and the things that make the most impact for you like you get that choice because ultimately at the end of the day company doesn't give a shit how you get it done they just want you to sell x amount back x amount of time the hard part about that is when your day revolves around you having to make your own schedule all of a sudden you always feel like you should be filling your schedule if you're a more you know what i mean like yeah for sure when you yeah, like if you're a go-get rep, if you're a go-getter, right, you're always going to be filling your schedule, which makes it difficult for downtime. You've got to be able to like draw and not boundaries, but you've got to be able to break what you're doing down into manageable size chunks and come up with what you're supposed to be doing for that day. And I've got a really good like little method for doing that we'll publish one day to where you're satisfied. And like when you're done with those things, like you, you feel like you're making the right progress and you can quit for the day. You can turn it off. 
or if you do check back in, it's only just to keep up with your emails and kind of get it back down to zero or prep for the next day or whatever, right? Hard part is I see so many salespeople that don't organize well. Some people will call it a work-life balance, but that's actually not what it is. It's your disorganization, your lack of goals, and your lack of milestones getting to those goals and being able to take that stuff and break it down into daily actions. It's your inability to do that that makes you always feel like you're behind. And there's so many salespeople out there that just work and work and work and work. And that's where you start to get into concepts of like busy as a currency, right? Like people are always like, oh, I'm so busy. And they think that that's a cool thing. Uh, really, it just shows you're disorganized, right? So if you don't have a method for breaking that stuff down to where you can walk away at the end of the day knowing you're in good shape, you're going to work too much. And it'll feel like you're being overworked, but it's not. It's just you don't know how to organize. So we're almost defining organization as a key criterion for success as a sales rep. Sounds like a future episode to me. Yeah, and we'll do we'll do an episode. I know that we have one planned right now to talk about. It's not time management, it's priority management. And we'll get into some of the ins and outs of how to do that. But then when you talk about priority management too, I think this is where people get into work-life balance discussions. And the hard part is people still, though, go to work. Most people still, 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. Sales is just not like that, right? I mean, it's such a more, it's, it's a much more dynamic position in a profession that, uh, you know, you can kind of just do a lot of stuff when you need to do it, especially when you get in the field. You get a ton of freedom. But it's about making sure that you're living, I mean, as it all bubbles up, right? It's about making sure that at the end of the day, end of the week, end of the year, end of your career, end of your life, you've lived it in a mix that suited you. And it's about being able to lay out and say, hey, right now work is super important to me. I'm going to make sure it takes up you know, X amount of my time. And therefore you structure how you do around that. Or hey, relationships on the fritz or I'm trying to build this new one. I'm going to spend a bunch more time on it. And then just being able to prioritize things. And I actually have, I've spent time to come up with a methodology to where I do, like I have certain tasks and th certain things based on the mix that my life needs to be right now where I'm focusing on myself for X amount of tasks and things a, month, a week, my you know wife, my work, my side hustle, my you know just like business of life kind of stuff. And like you can create a methodology out of it. And I think that you know for us it's super important to do because our work is so dynamic. So while that's such a good thing, you have to be organized. <laughs> You're leaving me and our listeners on a cliffhanger. This is <laughs> definitely going to be part of our future episodes or we'll discuss this in whatever medium we decide to share it in hint hint and i know i've spent a lot of time building out my methodologies my priorities especially for how i spend my time while i'm at work but you really take it to yeah. a whole nother level and able and being able to schedule your life and plan for the things you need to do and your priorities and making sure the time you spend man it's one of those things like if anybody ever wants to talk about time management come to me i have tried them all. I've created my own methods, some way over the top, some too simple, most never work. I'm on one now that I feel like it's the best of all of it and it's working super well. And at the end, like I said, I can, at the end of the day, if I check the things on my list that are the mix of what I need to based on where I'm at in my life, I feel good. And that's how that whole journey started, right? It was just trying to feel good about where I was spending my time. There was so much guilt and so much anxiety wrapped up in where you spend your time 
and I know people feel this because I was just like riddled with it. Yeah, and it's easy to feel that way if you don't accomplish the things you want to get done. Yeah, if I don't, if I'm off my process, and it happens a lot too, like when I travel a lot, um, especially with last minute travel, like I can. Um, it's, <laughs> it's unavoidable. Yeah, some of it is. I mean, but I can structure my week. So I know if I'm like, hey, I'm traveling, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, I set realistic expectations for the week to say, hey, Wednesday, Thursday, you're only going to be able to get so much stuff done. Right. And it's things like you can't always rely on planes having Wi Fi. You can't always rely on not sitting next to two giant people to where you can pull your laptop out and get that shit done. Like you've got to take into consideration. And I think that comes with experience, but taking into consideration things that you can and cannot control and making sure that you're setting realistic expectations based on what you're dealing with, you know, at the moment. And it's the last minute stuff I can't plan for that really fucks me up. Yeah. Well, hey, I think we are going to spend time in episode. Um, I know. I just get so excited yeah. about that stuff, Hey, <laughs> okay? You got me going on the priority management and time management. Yeah. Yeah. I think so that that will be part good. of our process, though, um, and that we will bring for that sure. out in due time. Um, for but, sure, but I think where we are today and, and where we are with this episode, we've talked about how valuable millennials and millennial salespeople are to their company. We've talked about the high impact you can make, the financial freedom that this will provide you, uh, your ability to grow personally and professionally. I think all of these factors are why a lot of us stick to this role. We might not have been able to express, or we may not have expressed all of these things explicitly, but there's, I think, a, a real benefit and opportunity here as a salesperson and a, as a young seller, any for all sellers right now. I'm, I'm glad that that's, I think that's the message that we've been able to cover is that you have this tremendous opportunity. Continue to think strategically of why you're here, why you might take yeah. advantage of this opportunity. Yeah. And it I just, I mean, getting very transparent about why I do any of this stuff like this, right? Like why a podcast, why train people, why I do any of that stuff is because I'm tired of watching good people find themselves in a bad spot, lack the patience and perspective to understand what it really is. Is it a bump in the road or is it truly something that's bad for you? And then leave a profession that could be so good, rewarding, fulfilling, and life-changing for them. But then also, I hate to see good people leave because frankly, I want to change, one of my personal goals is to change the way that salespeople are viewed. And I think that that would benefit all of us in a handful of ways. But you know, ultimately what it comes down to is I want more people out there leveraging this position to sell from the heart, make big changes. And then the people who do that well will become wealthy. And if you're a really good person with a big heart without money, as soon as you get it, you're still a really good person with a big heart who's now wealthy and can like spread that over to whatever organization you want to help. With. Like, you know what I mean? It really does. You got to extrapolate these ideas. And I just, I really want to see more purpose-driven salespeople coming into this game. And it just, the time couldn't be better. Yeah, and is there anything else while we're wrapping up episode one that you wanted to make sure we covered? Yeah, there is. There is. I'm glad you asked. So it's, I wanted to touch on, so like, and again, speaking directly to the people who have gotten into, you know, they came from college, they went to the boot camp, they got into sales, and all of a sudden they're like, shit, 
this doesn't feel right. I don't belong or my manager's a dick or, you know, there's a lot more like cutthroat people here than I thought there'd be. I want to reassure you that we're in the middle of a transition, right? The people who are your managers today are likely people who either were salespeople in the, in the old way of selling back when tech was different and the dynamics were different or they were trained by those people. They were also managed by those folks. So that culture is still very uh, prevalent. It's less relevant than it used to be, but it's still very prevalent in the workplace today. And so I would say, if you find yourself in a position where you're not really feeling supported by your, or your managers just seems very, you know, by the numbers and it's like all about money and it's just like, just get the job done, who cares? Uh, you know, do bad things or whatever. Like if it doesn't, if it doesn't feel as touchy feeling as I'm making it sound, it's because that person was influenced by or came from the old dynamic. And that is rapidly changing. We are in the middle of that. So I'm, I'm here to say two of the things we talked about. One, we are replacing that guard. And then the second is, again, the beauty of sales is you get to restart every 12 months. You get to re hit the reset button every 12 months. If you don't like the role you're in now, don't make a short-term decision because you've got opportunity for change when the new fiscal year hits. And that means switching teams yourself, switching companies yourself, um, you know, the manager is going to switch, whatever. I mean, change is ever happening in tech. So I, I think I'm here to just like warn people who are feeling like they don't belong or feel like this wasn't for them. Don't make a short-term decision based on those things, right? And you know what? If you're not feeling great about your sales career or you have a bad manager, you're in a bad spot, some of this or all of this that we talk about today might not even have resonated with you. Um, 100%. But that's one of the reasons we're doing this episode and this podcast is to tell you it doesn't have to be that way, that there are better things out there on the horizon. Yeah. And, and this is where it's a bit counterintuitive for millennials as well, because, and let's face it, we're so much more used to these days just getting stuff exactly when we want it, right? Everything's instant. Everything's on, you know, the touch of an app or, you know, snap of a finger. This is one of those things that this is like that real life shit that people talk about that it can't be microwaved, right? You've got to just see this stuff out. You have to exercise patience. You have to exercise strategic thinking and being able to see past how you feel right now. And that is something that I think millennials were not necessarily raised to do. And I think that a lot of us struggle with that today. And that is a challenge that you'll face because you feel like, hey, it's not suiting me right now. I go somewhere else. Or, hey, you know, this feels really bad right now. Therefore, it must be bad forever. Or maybe you don't even think that far. Maybe you're just like, he pissed me off, so fuck him, I'm out. Like, whatever it is, you have to have that patience to see this thing through. But again, you're on a 12-month cycle, right? Stick it out. Really, no matter how bad it is, stick it out. But I can sympathize with that individual. How do you know, if you're on a 12-month cycle, how do you know how long is too long? You don't, I can imagine the feeling that, or even I've, I've had the feeling where you're, you might feel stuck or you might think, yeah. I don't want to waste my time through this. How do you balance, I mean, what is this balancing act? Totally. Yeah, I mean, the thing about it is, is if you have to question if you've done it long enough to see if it was the right choice or not, you haven't done it long enough to see if it was the right choice. I understand you saying that if you have to ask, then you haven't stuck around long enough. But how do you how do you know? How do you reasonably say with confidence that I've stuck around long enough to know I don't enjoy this or I need to change? Great question. So 
you have to look at why you're doing it in the first place. If you have this job just to make money, to pay the bills, whatever, if it's doing that, if it's checking your boxes as to why you set out to do it, then great, right? If you're in this particular role because you've got another role down the road that you want to do or you want to go into management or you want to go in the field or you want to open your own business, whatever, education is going to be the biggest priority for you in the moment, right? Especially if you're young. There's not the pressure to make is the most money you've ever made when you're young and just starting your career. What you should be focusing on is, am I growing? Am I learning? And do I have people around me that can help get me where I need to be? And there's a couple of reasons why somebody would not like their role, right? Like maybe, maybe it's a shitty territory and you know, they just, they're like, man, I just don't see a path to making a ton of money right now, you know, this year or whatever. But it's more likely that that's combined with, uh, you know, my manager's a dick and I just don't get the support and they're always all over me about like how many calls I make or, Hey, where's your forecast, whatever, like finding answers to those Question, like finding ways, educating yourself to find ways around those things is more important, I would say, than just hanging it up and moving to the next thing because you're going to experience the same stuff everywhere. I mean, sales is a numbers game, right? We are measured very strictly on how much do we produce. It That's the beauty and the tough part of it. Some people, if you're in a different industry doing a different role, like, I don't know, maybe HR or something, right? Like they probably have like things that they measure you on, but there's not really in any other career a metric where they say, if you don't do X amount, you have failed. We, we have that measurement. And so in that, it can make it very difficult month over month, especially if you don't know what you're doing. When somebody comes to you and says, how much are you going to sell this month? How about next month? How about the entire year? And you're like, I don't fucking know. And so many people get frustrated and they throw up their hands and act like people are picking on them. When in reality, it's a really good trait to be able to learn to say, you know what? Not super clear on that yet but here's what we're doing. Here's, I think I'll be able to tell you by X because I've got X amount of things in the pipeline or things that I'm doing or meeting I'm going to have next week to where I should be able to give you a better answer. Can we, can we check back in there? Like learning that skill of just being able to think that way or to be able to present it that way is super good, right? Like you've, you've got to, that's going to help you no matter what you end up going and doing, right? So I feel like people just give up on it too easily because it's uncomfortable versus you know, being able to like kind of stick in and work with it, especially if it's a bad situation. I've had a bad manager before. And I found that if I could do the things that kept me off the radar, that made that particular individual not berate me, then turns out, hey, I was actually going a little bit deeper and more um, specific in certain things than I would have done otherwise. That was a good growth opportunity for me. Plus being able to figure out like how to deal with a challenging manager with a challenging communication style, that was growth for me, right? Especially a, a people pleaser that uh, struggles to, you know, struggles with a little bit of like one-on-one -on -one confrontation. I hate hand-to-hand -hand combat, you know, like verbal combat. And it was good. It was a good experience for me, right? It's growth. And, and look, and, and we'll keep all of this, but I mean, the point is, is like when knowing how long your eyes are on the wrong target if you're sitting there saying, have I done this long enough to where I can hang it up? Because all you're actually doing is looking to justify what you're feeling, which is I don't want to do this anymore. I feel like I should quit. How long can I say I did it to where I don't have to feel guilty about it? And if that's the question you're trying to answer, you're going to feel good. It's the wrong move. You should do everything you can 
to try to make that situation work. Learn more, be better, ask for help, be more transparent about what you need from your manager, which most of us do not do. Those are the things you should be focusing on. And when all of that is exhausted, and it's still a bad situation, and it doesn't check the boxes of why you're there, am I getting educated to where I can do the next thing? Am I maybe making money to where I can go do whatever? If you're not checking those boxes and you've done all that stuff, then it's time to leave, but not before then. And it's, look, it's hard when you're in it and you're kind of dreading going in because it, it sucks and you're catching shit and you're not very good at what you're doing. I mean, few places are you more exposed than in this game. But that's why I like working with salespeople because it's normally just like one or two little tweaks or just a perspective shift that helps you get through those times, right? And so that's why I encourage, reach out to me. I would love to help. My favorite thing to do is take somebody who comes in and is depressed about shit and is like, man, I just, I can't do this anymore. And it's like, well, let's talk about it, right? My favorite thing to do is to turn that stuff around for people because you watch that go off, you watch that light bulb go off. Very rewarding for me and it, it helps them. So reach out to us. If you're in that position, if you feel like you want to quit next week, email me, we'll talk about it. And that's a wrap. Um, I think that's exactly what we wanted to cover today. Uh, so thanks for listening. Thank you for your time. Um, we've got a couple exciting episodes coming up. Thank you. Do you and don't tease? forget. Yeah, yeah, a little teaser there, right? Yeah. Maybe we should do the the, t- the priority management so- sooner now that we talk so much about that. Maybe we should. Maybe we should. You'll have to tune in to see. <laughs> but make sure you drop by the website. <laughs> Make sure you drop by the website to check out some of these uh, the supplemental information we have about the timeline, uh, about how things have changed, sales has adapted. That website is millennialsalespod.com, and check it out. You'll see all kinds of new stuff. Plus, you can see our shining faces on there as well, in case you're wondering what uh, these two sexy voices look like in person, <laughs> which is, I'm pretty sure, what no one's ever said about my voice before. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'm so, done. And he's Charlie Lisk. I'm Jay Jackson. Please reach out to us. If you have ideas for what you'd like to hear on this podcast, we're in the early goings of this. We have plans for 10-ish episodes, but um, we're continuing to build out our content as we go. We're trying to make sure we're process-driven about this exercise too, so we'd like your feedback. Um, we'll make sure to respond to emails. Um, I can give out Charlie's phone number if you want. It starts with a 512. <laughs> <laughs> but uh thanks for tuning in no he's right for sure thanks everybody